Today we wrap up our Journey in James series uh, with James chapter 5, and he's challenging the early church to grow deeper, to allow the Holy Spirit of God to transform us, to conform us to the image of his Son. So I invite you to look on the screen, or if you have a copy of God's Word in your hand, uh, James chapter 5, we'll start reading in verse 1 this morning, it says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming unto you. He says, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James transitions here. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. He says, uh, you also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts? Lord, as we wrap up the, the book of James this morning and, and really try to wrap our minds around all of this that you want to do in our hearts and lives. As believers, as followers, as the church of Jesus Christ, God, may we seek wisdom from above. God, may we persevere in times of trial. God, may we grow uh, intimately close and and connection with you. God, would you do a mighty work in the hearts and lives of your church. Lord, I pray most importantly, if there's someone here today who's never placed their faith and trust in you for salvation, God, may this morning be that moment that they understand their need and they bow their knee and confess you as Lord and Savior. Receive the gift of eternal life. God, uh, the greatest gift man can ever receive. God, would you do a mighty work in the hearts of each one that's here, each one that's tuning in online this morning. God, would you do a mighty work in our hearts and challenge and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. All of God's people said, amen. There's a warning to the wealthy as James is is wrapping up this final chapter of of, uh, a book to the church, to the early church. He's giving a warning, and possibly it's the strongest rebuke uh, from James is found in the first six verses of, of James chapter 5. His, his reference in the second person indicates he's not necessarily speaking to those within the church, but those who would hear this read uh, to the early New Testament church. And so he, he's giving them direction. Many scholars debate this point, but one thing is clear. James doesn't hold back in his strong rebuke to the wealthy that take advantage of the poor. James is confident that God will bring judgment on those who exploit the poor. And in verse 1, he mentions the miseries that are coming. And verse 3 refers to the last days. And he warns them, he says, weep 
and howl. I mean, when you read stuff like that, it's not the warm and fuzzy. Sometimes you come to church and you're like, I want to feel good about myself. I want to come away with all the, the, those good feelings about going to church. But James is saying, you ought to weep and howl. In other words, he's saying, he said, there's something that comes with those who've taken advantage of the, the unfortunate. The word weep comes from the Greek word kleo, which means to sob out loud or to lament. It refers to the, the wailing that took place when someone has died. It depicted the outward reaction that sometimes accompanies intense shame and guilt. So he's saying, he said, this is for people who, are, who have wronged others, people who have who've spent their life taking advantage of, of the less fortunate. Some scholars believe he's addressing non-Christians during the tribulation period and who they've been left behind during the rapture and Christians will be taken up in the clouds. Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. He says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. If you know Jesus Christ as your savior, the coming of the Lord, the second return of Christ is not a scary time. In fact, it's a, an exciting time. It's something we look forward to with great anticipation. God has a plan for his church right now. We're to be a bold witness of the life-changing power of the gospel. That's why we're here. That's why he left us. Otherwise, at the point of conversion, at the point of salvation, he could have raptured us on and taken us straight to heaven. But he's left us here with a purpose. But there is a moment he's going to return and he's going to take his bride, the church of Jesus Christ, home to heaven. I remember, uh, I, I've said this a, a few years ago, but I remember in second grade and in Christian school, they showed a, 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 a video. It was a poorly made video called Thief in the Night. Anyone seen this movie? I'm talking like if you've ever seen a B-rated movie, this was maybe a, a B-minus Maybe a C, but it haunted me for uh, decades. I mean, it has haunted me for years. And uh, someone uh, a few years ago, I mentioned something about it. And they said, I've got a copy. And they brought it to me. I was like, ain't a chance in the world I'm putting that thing in a video. I don't even have a VHS player. But it was an old VHS player, uh, a tape of Thief of the Night. And I'm telling you, uh, the rapture comes during that movie. And uh, uh, there's some guy sitting here shaving in the in the in the the electric razor falls in the sink and it's just his family members find it as he's raptured on the, the heaven and people are driving down the road and all of a sudden their car has no driver as, as they've been raptured and on up to heaven and I mean watching that as a kid I mean it scares the living uh, we'll just go on and say it just scares you half to death and uh, some pastors use the tactic of and, and don't take this wrong way. They will scare the hell out of you, so to speak. They're, they're going to scare you to death uh, in order to get you saved. And the reality is, is I remember watching that, and it scared me to death. And, and it would terrorize me. And, and for, for years, thinking to myself, what in the world? I mean, how terrifying. But, folks, if you know Christ is your Savior, that's not a scary thing. It's an exciting thing of knowing one day when... Christ is done with his bride, and he's done, our time here on this earth is done. He's going to take us out of this old world, and we're going to spend all of eternity in the presence of our Lord and Savior. God, that's not a scary thing. It's something to be looking forward to. But in James chapter 3, he says, 
Uh, in verse 3 of James chapter 5, James says, Your gold and silver have corroded. As some say, this is speaking of nuclear warfare. And whatever James is describing is, it's a time of judgment. It's a time of judgment. Those who uh, have taken advantage of the poor, sometimes uh, we're quick to see who the Word of God is speaking to. And if it's not directly to us, we're like, well, don't have anything to do with me. I can just kind of tune Pastor David out. He's speaking to the men this morning, you know. Uh, and, 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 or, or maybe he's speaking just to the, the wife and, and her position and how God has, has ordained her position in, in the marriage relationships. I, I can kind of tune this out or, or whatever. No, or he's speaking to the unsaved this morning and I can just kind of go on autopilot and, and cruise Amazon on my phone while he's preaching. I put that phone down. But anyway, pause for just a moment and recognize what is it that God is saying? Do you realize that as a society, as a culture, we are wealthier as Americans than 98% of the rest of the world. So before we dismiss this and say, you know what, Pastor David, <laughs> I'm not rich. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. All we need to do is go on one mission trip one mission trip. Get outside of our comfort zone. Host one native pastor from a developing nation. As pastor Omar was sitting in my SUV a few years ago as we drove through the parking lot of my kids' elementary school five minutes from here, and he was like, Every single car is so big. They're so expensive. We weren't at a private school. We were at a public school. Every house is so huge. Everybody has beautiful dogs. They're like, <laughs> they, you can't see their ribs. They're chunky. <laughs> That's what he was saying. Uh, your, your dogs are, are overweight. I mean, uh, Everything about you is spoiled. And I'm sitting here thinking, we haven't even gotten home yet. Yikes. Hurts. We're wealthier than 98% of the rest of the world they would consider us church. God wants us to listen even when the scripture makes us uncomfortable. Even when it makes us squirm and say, I don't know, Pastor David, I... James is clearly speaking of those who've used their wealth and riches wrongfully or, or badly. But in light of that, how does God want us to steward our resources? Do we have a roof over our head? Do we have air conditioner? A couple weeks ago, our air conditioner on the uh, second floor where all of our bedrooms are uh, went kaput. And uh, our, it was 87 degrees uh, when we went to lay down our heads at night, and uh, I'm thinking, I don't know if I can do this. I mean, uh, we're like, well, you could just go sleep on the floor on the first floor where it's 70 degrees. But uh, yeah, we, 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 we powered through, and uh, Friday night, my, my dad calls and says, our air is not working. It's 81 degrees. And 
Uh, and so I said, well, come on over and spend the night at our house. And uh, he came over and they got it fixed yesterday. But folks, we're, we're so spoiled. We, we, we are so comfortable. But maybe God wants us to listen in these moments of being uncomfortable and say, hey, he's blessed us so much. How does God want me to take the things that he has gifted me with, he's blessed me with, and use them for the glory of God, to use them for the kingdom of God? Clearly, James is connecting us to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, as believers, we should be laying up treasures in heaven. Matthew chapter 6, verse 20 says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in. And still, anybody have a, a security system on your house? Uh, the reality is, is so often we can live in fear of someone taking advantage of us. But he's saying, how are we doing at storing up treasures in heaven? Self-sufficiency is not a legitimate goal for a Christian. In fact, it can be an expression of pride if we're not careful. James is saying, he says, it's not wise. He's not saying it's not wise to make plans for the future. He says we ought to include God. And his will, his purpose, and his plans for our lives, we ought to be demonstrating humility towards Almighty God. God, how do you want me to use the next season of my life? Some of you are, are talking about retirement. You realize people, when they retire, often have more time than they've had in their entire lifetime because when they were young, in their early 20s, they're in college. They're just poor college students trying to, you know, crank it out and get done with school. And then all of a sudden you get married. And then before long, here comes the baby in a baby carriage. And, and you've got all these little mouths to feed. And, and you're, you're, you're going through life trying to make a living. And then they get older. They become teenagers. Then they start driving. And then you've got college. And then... All of a sudden, you get to that season of retirement, you're like, well, man, I'm going to peace out, and I'm going to be living in the Caribbean somewhere. But what about if we all started to look at life as, what does God want the next season, the next chapter of my life to look like? You have more time and often more resources. You could go, I was talking to someone the other day, say, they're going to retire in a few years, and said, hey, you could go on an extended mission trip and stay somewhere for a month. And be a relief to someone who maybe has to come home for a, a few weeks or, or, or help someone who's going through a difficult season be there to encourage them and, and lift them up. How does God want us to use that remainder part of our life? He's reminding us to demonstrate humility before the Lord and the plans and the future that he has. We're to be good stewards of all that God's entrusted in our care and desire to use it. For the kingdom of God. He pivots in, in verse in chapter uh, 5, verse 7. He begins to talk about being patient in our trials. All throughout the book of James, he speaks of suffering. He speaks of trials. What is James wanting us to be patient about? Imagine this. The early church witnessed the, the, the ascension of Christ. Some of, many of those early believers saw Christ as he ascended. His disciples saw him as he descend, ascends into heaven. In Acts chapter 1, uh, all of a sudden the, the Holy Spirit descends upon the earth in Acts chapter 2 at, at Pentecost. And people are thinking, hey, Jesus is going to come back very soon. Probably within the month. Probably within that first year. Probably within the first five years or ten years, Jesus is going to come back. But what happened is the 
time wore on, the early church experiences persecution. They experience trials. They experience tribulations on every side. And all of a sudden, they're starting to lose hope. They're starting to lose faith. Is Jesus truly going to come back? Is he going? Paul thought he was going to come in his lifetime. Peter, thought, many of the, the early Christians thought, we're going to see Jesus return in our lifetime or before this generation passes. And so they, they were serving the Lord. They thought he was going to return soon, but now they're starting to lose hope. All of us have had seasons in our life where we wondered, is God going to remove the pain? Some of you mothers have had quite the experience in childbirth. And, uh, uh, you know, sometimes guys like to say, hey, they like to tell these stories about how bad it was. You know, and the story is just like your fishing story. I mean, that, that fish gets bigger and bigger. Uh, the, the more they tell the, their, their horror stories of having a, a baby, it gets worse and worse. The pain is like unbearable. And they're, they're literally about to scream and punch you in the face. And, and uh, guys, I would just recommend you just love, just be there, uh, give her pillows if she wants to punch you in the face, but you know, love her and encourage her, but the reality is, is don't underestimate the pain that she's experienced. Some of you have gone through kidney stones, and you're like, Pastor, that is the worst pain, you know, uh, you could possibly ever experience. Some of you have had gallbladder, gallstones, and I've got the scars from those surgeries, and you know, the reality is, is we're willing, God, is this ever going to go away? Is the pain ever going to give me some relief? And it, it, it's all overwhelming. James is reminding us, he says, trouble is an inevitable part of life. And he says, the universal experience of it reflects the reality that we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world. So when you have pain in childbirth, Talk to Eve. <laughs> Can you imagine the line in heaven getting ready to, to meet Eve, you know, and say, I'm going to punch her in the face. I mean, I'm, in, in Jesus' name, of course, I'm, I'm going to punch her in the face because it's all her fault, you know. Uh, some of you that will do hard manual labor and you're, you're working hard constantly, I'm going to punch Adam in the face. I mean, all of this working by the sweat of your brow, it's his fault. If he had just not eaten of the forbidden fruit, I wouldn't be going through all this, but... Job says in Job 5, 7, he says, But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Folks, we find ourselves in trouble constantly. We're going to face fiery trials. So we must learn to be patient. James says in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. He says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early in late rains. Every year uh, we plant a, a, a small garden. When I say small garden, it's a raised bed garden, so it's very small. But it uh, has a couple tiers on it. We have a couple of smaller things that have herbs, and, and uh, this year we have a couple that have cucumbers and stuff in them. And we plant those things, and we plant, uh, we, we, we plant them in the soil, we fertilize them, we water them, and then we do what? You wait. You wait. You wait. We usually plant them end of April, 1st of May. And you wait some more. And you wait some more. And you, you keep watering and you're like, man, I'm, I'm almost done with this garden. It hasn't even started. I mean, the reality is, is it, there's flowers that come on. 
and then eventually some vegetables start to come on, and then, I mean, I've had green tomatoes now, it seems like, for like seven months, but you know, they're just starting to turn, and uh, I guess it's squirrels, maybe it's the rabbits, you know, but somebody, something's eating my uh, uh, tomatoes, and uh, they're just eating like half of them and leaving the other half, they're so kind, they're leaving half of it for us, and uh, then they're eating the other half of them, so now I'm having to pick them as soon as they just start to turn right, I'll have to pick them off the vine so I can get them before the squirrels devour them or the, or the rabbits devour them, and, but it takes time, it takes patience. And that's what James is saying. He says, be patient. Verse 8 reminds us, God has a plan. Don't grumble about it. Verse 9, when we persevere with forbearance, we get to see God's purpose and his plans unfold in our lives. And church, that's when we experience the fruit. It's during times of trial. It's during times of testing when we're faithful, when we persevere, when we await on God, when we wait on his purpose and his plan, that's when the fruit is evidenced in the life of a believer. We don't see fruit right away. We'll go through periods of time, of, of trials, of tribulation. But he says in verse 11, if we remain steadfast, we'll experience the compassion and mercy of the Lord. I love that because what happens is just when you least expect it, you are like, I've been watering, I've been pulling weeds. I mean, I've, I have just waited and waited and waited. And one day you walk outside and there's these little itty bitty teeny tomatoes. There's these little teeny peppers starting to come out from that flower. And all of a sudden you see the fruit of all of the labor, of all of the waiting, of all of the persevering, of all of the being patient. And it reminds us of the remaining, what God is doing is he's working his plan, his will in our life. And if we're faithful, folks, we will see fruit from those trials. Let's pick up the remaining verses. Verse 13, he says, is any among you, anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him out of any committed sins. He will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again in verse 18, and heaven gave rain. The earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James wraps up chapter 5. He says, the prayer of faith. James says, is anyone in suffering or in misery? Let him pray. Why not? So often we'll be like, well, Pastor David, will you pray for me about this situation? And my first instinct is like, have you prayed about it? Well, well Pastor, I just want you to pray about it because I feel like you're going to get your prayer answered. And 
Have you prayed about it? He says, if anyone is in suffering or in misery, let him pray. That is the answer. That's where we find our answers. Is anyone cheerful? He says, let him sing praise. Say, well, I'm going to be on the worship team. You know what? Some of the greatest worshipers probably don't have the necessarily the best uh, harmonizing ability. I mean, uh, but they're singing from the heart, and God is pleased. I can only imagine uh, one day when my dad gets to heaven, he is going to be on the front row of the choir. I mean, he is completely tone deaf. I mean, every word is on the same exact note. I mean... Uh, you know, rooted would be no problem. I mean, just all the same, all the way down. I mean, every single song, it's just completely tone deaf. But I can't imagine when he gets to heaven one day, he's going to be singing with the heavenly choir. I think he might have a little sway, maybe even a little dance going on. I don't know, but it's going to be exciting because he will have a heavenly voice singing with the, 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 the saints of old, the, the angels that are, that are in heaven. But he says, is any of you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. What we see here in this last part of chapter 5 is prayer is the key to getting to the heart of God. James is encouraging. He says, pray. Pray always. Pray without ceasing. He in no way is saying that sickness is a result of unconfessed sin. But he says, however, sin can be a cause for our suffering. So he says, pray. When we have a need, pray. Verse 15 says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise them up. If you've committed sins, he will be forgiven. Does this mean that everyone who's sick must come before the pastors and elders and ask for prayer? That's not what he's saying. I remember in college, going to a, a Baptist church and sitting in a Sunday night service, and all of a sudden... They were anointing someone with oil and laying hands and praying over them in the front of the service. And I was like, whoo, I cannot wait to tell my dad. <laughs> so I get, to, I get back to my dorm room and I'm like, dad, something happened tonight in a Baptist church. You are not going to believe this. Uh, they were anointing people with oil and they were praying over them and people were being healed. And it was crazy. I mean, you would not. And I said, dad, I don't know what I believe about that. And he was like. Were they, was it, were they reading from James chapter 5, verse 13? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, it's in the Bible. It's scriptural. And, but I'm telling you, this Baptist roots up here, it was like, whoo, don't start that mess. I mean, it's going to be demonic in a minute. And I was, I was starting to get a little nervous and anxious. And, and he says, no, it's part of the word of God. Jesus, and so I, I sat there and I watched it and it was amazing to see how God shows that he is sovereign overall. It's comforting to be reminded that when we're in the midst of a trial, we can go to the Lord in prayer. And I remember many years ago, a, a lady in our church, she came and she said, Pastor, would you pray over me and anoint me with oil? Ms. Sharon Spores, those of you that have been here for some time, no, Miss Sharon was a godly woman, and her, uh, her husband, Brother Roy, when they moved here, they came and they found their church. They attended two or three Sundays, found their church. Listen to this. I think this is sound, solid, godly, biblical advice. And then they bought their house based on the church. 
This is where God has led us to worship. Brother Roy used to sit right over in this area, right here on the corner. Boy, he would yell amen. I mean, he was so loud. He was, you could not, everybody knew him as the amen man. I mean, he was like just excited. But she came to me one day, she said, Pastor David, she said, would you, not in front of the whole church, not to make a spectacle of, she said, would you come by my house and pray over me and anoint me with oil? I thought, I was like, I know where we're going with this. James 5. And I'm sitting here going, I don't even have any oil. Like, is this like uh, uh, WD 40 oil? Is this like, you know, do I go to the cooking section, olive oil? Because, you know, from Israel, I'm sitting here all nervous and I go to Lifeway. Did you know back in the day you'd go to Lifeway and they sold like anointing oils and now we have essential oils, you know, which is, you know, it's a cold all its own. I'm kidding. But anyway, we, we get those oils, and I, and I got one that's called hyssop. And it sounds like uh, I was thinking of the verse, purge me with hyssop. And so I remember going to her house, and we prayed over her and anointed her with oil. And she told me several, some years later, she said, three or four times that you prayed over me, she said, God healed me. Then one day she got cancer for the second time it returned. And God didn't heal her that time. But you know what she said? She said, he didn't heal me outwardly like he did before. But she said, today, I'm preparing for the presence of the Lord. When I preached her funeral, it was one of the most godly moments of just sharing how God used her to increase my faith as a pastor to say, you know what, there's something to this praying and then leaving it completely to God. Say, God, it has nothing to do with me. It shows he's sovereign. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. There's nothing that's too difficult for him. So when we praise his pray for the sick person, pray in the name of the Lord uh, means that we're praying according to his will. A pastor or elder is not omniscient. We don't know necessarily God's will on every single matter. But he says we're praying over a sick person and we're trusting God. Then secondly, it says anoint them with oil. The oil doesn't have healing powers of its own, but rather it's ceremonial. It's symbolic of the power and blessing of the Holy Spirit. And folks, then thirdly, he says leave the results to who, church? To God. Aren't you glad it doesn't depend on me? Aren't you glad it doesn't depend on you? During the, uh, uh, the mission trip when we were in Nicaragua, I was like, you know what? It's not depending on me for these people to get saved. During, during Kids Blast, I'm like, it didn't depend on any of our staff. I said, we're just a mouthpiece. We're just a messenger. It's the Holy Spirit of God who convicts us and draws us to faith in Christ. So the prayer's faith is not saving him from his sins to become a Christian. He's talking about sick Christians, people who are sick that already have a relationship with Christ. They're calling on the pastor or the elders to pray over them. James is referring to the saved or being delivered from this sickness. Then the Lord is the one who raises the person up and restores their health, not man. See, that's the difference. There's 
Uh, many people today that you, you can watch on TV and boy, they're slaying people in the spirit, knocking people out. And, and I'm not going to get into all that this morning. What I'm saying is not all of it is of God. But the reality is, is God doesn't need us. He doesn't need man. He is the healer. He is the great physician. But folks, when we're faithful to his word and praying in faith, believing God does answer prayer. Do you believe that church? Do you believe they answer prayers? Do you believe that he answers the prayers of the righteous? He restores our health, not man. I love the last part of verse 16. He says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. God certainly hears the prayers of righteous men and women. I love the illustration he uses in verse 17, 18. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it would not rain for three years and six months. It did not rain on the earth. Can you imagine being the weather forecaster during that season of time? <laughs> not just a, a month of no rain. Not just six months or a year, for three and a half years. Can you imagine the farmers are all doing rain dances? They're chanting, they're running around their fields. I mean, they're all you know, praying, they're talking to the weatherman at the at WRL saying, What in the world is going to give? It's not rain in three years. And like, I don't know, it's crazy. I mean, I'm on the line, online searching every day. It's not, nothing's that. Three and a half years. Then he prayed again, verse 18, and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah didn't have a special direct line to God that you and I don't have. He was a prophet of God. God used him mightily, but folks, he was an ordinary man who served an extraordinary God. When we call out to God in prayer, He's saying, we've got to pray in faith, believing, believe for it, believe that God is going to do it. Say, so what's the application? As we wrap up the book of James, it's clear our faith in Christ ought to change us. We haven't experienced the life-changing power of the gospel if we confess that Jesus is Lord with our mouth, but we live like we are on our own through our own actions. We, we, we feel like we're doing it all on our own accord. A true faith, a living faith, has the natural outworking of good works. And good works, no matter how good, cannot produce authentic faith. Faith is always a gift and never earned. So as you face trials, as you experience temptation, as you minister to the needy, as James talks about, as you suffer, he says, have faith in God. Be patient. God is working out his greatest work in our lives. As we're praying, don't lose hope. As James is telling these early New Testament believers, it's persecution, it's trials, it's temptations, it's tribulations come your way. He says, don't lose hope. God hadn't forgotten us. He hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't forgotten your greatest period of need and, and struggle. He says, as you face the trials, as you experience temptation, as you minister, as you suffer, he says, have faith in God. 
Trust him for wisdom. Trust him for compassion. Trust him for patience. Trust him with endurance. Trust him for healing. Trust him for the faith that produces a harvest of righteousness. As James concludes chapter 5, he encourages, he says, look for those who've wandered from the faith and help restore them to a proper faith in God. Maybe they've grown weary. Maybe they're looking out on the horizon for when the next rainstorm's going to come and it's bone dry. Maybe they're looking and saying, God, is, are you still alive? Are you still on the throne? Do you even care about the struggles that I'm facing? Maybe it was like Job had had a, a wife who says, hey, just curse God and die. Let's just get this thing over with. I mean, the reality is, is he's saying when all of those things are happening, when people are struggling with their faith, help restore them. Help encourage them. Come alongside of them. Put your arm around them. Pray with them. Pray for them. Let them know that they're not alone. I wonder this morning, do you know anyone who's wandering from the faith? What can you do to reach out to them personally? Encourage them. Be a source of strength for them. Offer that lifeline, that just imagine you're drowning and you're, you're, you're going down and you're bouncing off the bottom and you're coming back up for a, another breath of air and all of a sudden there's a faithful Christian who's there with a life raft. They're there with a, a life vest. They're there with a, a hand to grab you and help pull you back into the boat. The reality is this morning is, folks, we've got to be looking out for one another in the church of Jesus Christ. Hey, I miss you. I want to encourage you. you. We're not the same without you. Folks, we need each other. We need the encouragement of the saints. But he says, pray a lot for that person before you do anything. Listen for God's direction. Because you know what? Just a couple chapters in, back in chapter 3, James talked about the tongue. We're not careful we can say something smart and off the wall and offend that person and draw them further away. He says, use our, our tongue for blessing, encouragement, lifting up. Listen for God's direction and remember, allow the Holy Spirit of God to use us for His glory. To lift up and build the kingdom of God. You see, this week is we we have a mission team that's going to Romania. We're leaving in, I'm leaving my house at 3.15 to go to the airport. When we get to Romania on Monday night, we're going to meet people at a church and at a school, Pastor Elijah and Claudia. Tuesday night, they had a massive thunderstorm, maybe even a tornado that came through and has destroyed, I mean, just ripped roofs off of buildings. We're going to be walking into people that have been beat down. They're discouraged. They need some people that are going to encourage them. I'm excited because we have a team of seven 
Five of them, it's their very first mission trip. We're prayed up and we're, we're going to step on a plane and we're going to fly over there. And folks, we're praying, God, would you use us to encourage? Maybe they need a lifeline. Maybe they need a hand. Maybe they need to, someone to pull them back into the boat and encourage them. Pray that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus. We'd encourage them as we're doing, we were told we were doing two two-day VBSs. Now we're doing two four-day VBSs. You pray that God uses us to be a light in the hearts and lives of these young people we'll minister to, that God would transform their lives. If they don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, that they would be added to the family of God. This next, we pray that God would do some supernatural work in our hearts. Look around the church. Some of our young people are starting to school tomorrow. Encourage them. Some of these teachers are going to be back in the classroom after a a very, very short break. And you know what? They're going to need someone to encourage them. They're going to need someone to text them tomorrow afternoon and say, hey, how was your first day? How, how was your first week at school this week? We want to encourage them. We want to encourage these college students going to be going back to college. They're facing direction and decisions like, where am I going to work one day? How am I going to afford to live at one day? How, what is the direction that God has for my life? Let's pray and encourage them that God would do a mighty work in their hearts and lives. Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts this morning?